All right, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. And in this session, we will be in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. And this section is still part of that first big chunk of the Gospel of Luke that we simply called the beginning of the story. And it's really the setup where we have the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, We have that snapshot we looked at last time when Jesus was 12. And here we get sort of the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. And so as we begin chapter 3, we need to fast forward another 18 years from the end of chapter 2. We're done with Jesus' early life. Now he's an adult. He's about 30 years old. And John the Baptist is all grown up to, and he's ready to assume his role as John the Baptist. And Luke begins this section with a very common way of marking the date. He does that by giving a list of rulers. So Luke chapter 3 begins this way. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, And Lysanias was the tetrarch of Abilene in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so Luke has listed off a whole host of rulers to help us identify the exact time period for when these events occurred. And so these date, uh, these rulers were well known in the ancient world. So we have first Tiberius Caesar. He's the Roman emperor, hence Caesar. Uh, Caesar Augustus of Luke chapter 2 died in the year AD 14, and Tiberius actually co-ruled with him as emperor for about two years, beginning around 11 or 12. And notice Luke tells us this is the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's rule. And so that puts it right around 26 or 27. And Tiberius was emperor until his death in the year 37. Luke also mentions Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea. Um, In Luke chapter 2, Judea and all of the region was ruled by Herod the Great. When Herod died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided up between his sons. Well, eventually, in the course of time, Judea was transferred to direct Roman rule after one of Herod the Great's sons was accused of misrule, and he was removed from office. And so Judea is now actually ruled by a Roman governor who's going to oversee Judea. Judea is the Roman political region that includes the city of Jerusalem and that whole area. So Pontius Pilate is the governor of the region of Judea. We have Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. This uh, is Herod Antipas, and he ruled the region of Galilee and another region called Perea. We also have here Philip. He's another son of Herod the Great and half-brother to Herod Antipas, and he ruled the regions uh, north and west of Galilee. And then we have Lysanias, who uh, ruled an area even further to the north and west of Galilee. In addition to these Roman rulers, Luke mentions two key Jewish leaders here in this opening. He mentions Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. If you're familiar with Jewish 
uh, religion, particularly as practiced here in the first century, this should seem a bit odd because the Jews are only supposed to have one high priest. But uh, the Romans had taken over control of appointing high priests, and they would appoint high priests who suited them. And so Annas was high priest from the year 6 to 15, but he was actually removed by a Roman ruler, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was installed as high priest. Although Annas isn't formally the high priest, he still retained power because he was the head of the high priestly family, and thus both are mentioned, Annas and Caiaphas, Jewish high priests. Now, by mentioning all of these rulers, Luke has placed the story of Jesus squarely onto the stage of history. We know when this was by overlapping all of the rulers, and that helps us realize that God's salvation isn't outside of time and space, but it actually happens in the real world, the real world of time and space, and God, particularly God in the person of Jesus, is willing to enter into our world as it really is to get his sandals uh, muddy and dirty, if you will, to get his hands dirty, if you will, in order to interact with and rescue this world. And so it was in those days when all these rulers were uh, on their various thrones, it was in those days, Luke says, that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. In other words, God stirred up John, and John began his ministry. And Luke's going to go on here in the rest of this paragraph and describe and summarize John's ministry. This is what he says in verse 3. And he, John, came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Jordan here is the Jordan River that runs north uh, to south through eastern Israel and empties into the Dead Sea. So if you look at a map, you can kind of see the Sea of Galilee in the north. You can see the Dead Sea in the south. And in between it, there's a river. That's the Jordan River. Um, and so John came into a district around the Jordan River, and he came preaching, preaching specifically, Luke tells us, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's preaching a baptism, and the word baptism simply means to dip or to immerse. That's what the word means. It wasn't even particularly a religious word. It's become that for us, but it originally was just a word that meant to dip or to immerse, and it could refer to a cloth being dipped in dye. It could refer to a person swimming or wading through water and being baptized up to their chest or their waist. It just meant to be immersed in a liquid. Uh, the Jews had various ritual washings, and they had washing pools called mikvahs, and those were common. In fact, you can still see some of those mikvahs, the ruins of them, still today. Some might even still be being used. Um, different sects of the Jews had case-specific baptisms for some of their unique customs. So John's activity here had historical and cultural precedent. Not only that, but in the Old Testament prophets, they associated repentance and renewal oftentimes with washing. You can see that in Isaiah 1 and Ezekiel 36. So John's uh, preaching a baptism is not out of the ordinary in the sense that at least there's some precedent for it. And John's baptism was a baptism, Luke tells us, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, it was a baptism of preparation. Repentance means 
turning specifically, in this case, turning from your sin and turning towards God and waiting and watching for God to act. So it's repentance. It's a turning away from your own way of life to God and his way of life. And you can see, and what will follow here in the description of John's preaching, we see this call to repentance. So we'll see that here in a second. And it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Faithful Jews in John's day knew they needed their sins forgiven. They knew uh, all the promises had not yet been fulfilled. They knew God hadn't returned to the temple. They knew they were still suffering some of the curses of exile uh, that uh, are embodied in the Roman government overseeing them and all of that. And so John's words uh, in this kind of preaching about forgiveness wouldn't have been shocking, except in the sense that they signaled uh, maybe perhaps a fresh movement of preparation for God to finally set his people free from their sins. And so many Jews longed for that. And so John John's preaching would find a ready audience with Jews who are looking for God to act, looking uh, for God to set them free from the curse of exile, looking for maybe the Messiah to come. And John, as a preacher and a baptizer in that vein, uh, would find a ready audience of people who are like, yes, that's what we need. That's what we're longing for. Now, John came preaching this baptism of repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins, and Luke ties that to the words of Isaiah the prophet. And so in verses 4 and 5, he says this, As it is written, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, the rough roads smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of our God. This explains why John is in the wilderness. This ministry of John's fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. And his prophecy here, as Luke has quoted it, is found in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. And these words of Isaiah were initially and partially fulfilled in the return from Babylonian captivity when the Jews traveled through the desert, through the wilderness, to return to their homeland. But that experience didn't finally and didn't ultimately fulfill the vision of Isaiah. And, and that's true with so many of the promises associated with the return from exile. They, they just never happened. Uh, the Lord had never returned to the temple in Jerusalem with his full Shekinah glory in any sort of way. And so the prophecy awaited fuller fulfillment, greater and more complete fulfillment. And John the Baptist was it. He is the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Um, and Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment, the one who is going to, uh, to be the Lord that uh, John is preparing the way for. Make ready the way of the Lord. Well, John is making ready the way of Jesus, the Lord who is going to fulfill all the great promises and prophecies found in the Old Testament prophets. Now, what does, it, what does it mean to make his path straight and remove obstacles and all the imagery associated with that? Well, the picture is explicitly about preparation. So making a straight path, right? Like we're in a world where uh, road building didn't happen with tractors and asphalt trucks. It, it happened by clearing out brush and timber and 
um, making a path through the wilderness. So make a straight path. Every ravine is going to be filled in. So we got to fill in the ravines for that path to go over. Um, mountains and hills, well, we got to lower those out to level out the ground. So we got an easy, smooth, straight path for the Lord and his salvation. And here in the context of John the Baptist preaching, that imagery is figurative for the people preparing their life and their heart for the Lord's coming and for the salvation he's going to bring. And so the following context seems to point in the direction of getting your life ready by means of repentance. And so Luke then goes on to summarize John's preaching, giving us examples of how he called the people to repentance. So verse 7 says, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That imagery, brood of vipers, simply means the offspring of snakes. It's a picture of uh, evil and people who are just born in evil, right? They just do wrong, and and they're fleeing from the wrath to come. And one commentator says, John's not after cheap success with a host of followers whose hearts have not been renewed. He's calling people to repentance and calling them out for their their evil and their wrongdoing. And in fact, He gives some specific examples uh, as Luke summarizes it here. Verse 8, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that repentance needs to show up in the fruit of a changed life. And so bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these very stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. And so repentance must lead to changed lives. And John says, don't think you're secure just because of your heritage, because you're descendants of Abraham. And if you're not familiar with the whole biblical story, you should go back and read Genesis 12 and following and read Abraham's story. But Abraham is the founding father of the Jews. He's the founding father of the Jewish faith. And and so being a Jew meant to be a descendant of Abraham and in some senses, at least in some circles, there was this pride of place among some of those Jews in the first century who thought, we're better off than the nations, we're better off than the Gentiles, we're descendants of Abraham. And and John's point here is that don't think just because of your heritage, because you're a descendant of Abraham, that that makes you secure. God can raise up from these stones descendants of Abraham. In fact, The Apostle Paul argues at length in both Romans and in Galatians that anyone who has the faith of Abraham is a descendant of Abraham, and that there's more to being a descendant of Abraham than just having Abraham's uh, DNA in your system, right? It's to have the faith of Abraham. And and so uh, John here is calling them to repentance and not just resting on their Jewish heritage or their Jewish faith, that you need to have a changed life in keeping with your repentance. It says, verse 9, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And again, this is just figurative language for the picture of an unfruitful tree. And the axe is there. It's, it's just ready. It's just sitting at the ready to cut down a tree that, it, that does not bear good fruit. And that tree is ready to be cut down and just used for firewood. It's not good for anything. It's not producing any fruit. So we might as well at least use it for something useful. Use it for firewood. That's the picture. And good fruit has to do with what people do, their whole manner of living. 
And because uh, this world was an agricultural society, agricultural imagery is common, both in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. So, for example, in Isaiah 5, Israel is compared to a vine, a a grapevine, or Jesus will use the imagery of a good tree that produces good fruit in his preaching. And thus the point is immediately clear, and John's audience responds by asking what to do. Tell us what to do, John. Help us out. We want to repent. We want to bear good fruit. What should we do? And John gives some specific examples. And so verse 10, the crowds were uh, questioning him, saying, well, what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. A tunic was the undergarment. It was the basic essential garment of the day. It was the garment that was worn against the skin under your your robe. And so if somebody doesn't have a tunic, I mean, they're missing their, their basic clothing. It's a fundamental need in their culture. And so John says, well, if you've got two of them, share with him who doesn't have any. And likewise, food. Food is a basic need. In other words, what John is saying is be generous and share and take care of those who barely have enough to take care of themselves. Verse 12, some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Tax collectors worked for the Romans, and they made money by charging a surcharge on top of the tax and custom fees. And this practice was not really regulated, and it was open to massive price gouging and to corruption. So John's instructions to the tax collectors who are coming is, look, you collect only what's right. Do your work with honesty and integrity, not in self-serving greed, just because you're not going to get in trouble for it and there's no one watching. Some soldiers, they came too. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, what about us? What should we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, these soldiers could be Roman soldiers or they could be Jewish troops who worked for Herod Antipas. Either way, uh, they're instructed not to use their power to bully people or to take from people, but instead to be content. Be content with their wages instead of taking people's money by force or accusing anyone falsely. Don't use your power to corrupt or to take advantage of those who don't have power or or for your own greedy purposes. So all three of these examples are living with integrity, living with honesty, and using your life actually in a way that is right, just, and righteous, and merciful, taking care of the needy. And again, this echoes so many of the prophetic themes in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament prophets, this is a repeated refrain. You do what's right. You do what's just. You love mercy, and you walk humbly with your God. Um, And we see this all over the place. John is echoing those themes. Live with integrity. This is what we do. Here's some specific examples. Now, while all the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ or not, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But there is one who is coming after me who is mightier than I, and I am not even fit to untie the thong of his sandals. So John knows his role. He knows who he is. He's not the Messiah. He's just the way preparer. 
Uh, he knows the Messiah is going to come after him, and he's not going to try to usurp the Messiah's place, even though all these people are flocking to him. In fact, John doesn't even believe that he's worthy to perform the lowest service of untying his sandal. I mean, that's that's the task referred to the the you know a low task of a lowly servant. I'm not even worthy for that. John says this act of uh, untying a sandal was such a lowly act that even though disciples were expected to carry out many of a servant's duties for their rabbis, this is one duty they were exempted from carrying out, untying a sandal, because it was such a low, uh, low task for such a low servant. And John says, I am so low compared to the Messiah that I'm too low to even do that kind of task. Uh, and then John goes on and says this about the Messiah. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Whereas John baptizes with only water, the Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit actually becomes a distinguishing mark of being in Christ. The Old Testament prophets had said that in the days of the Messiah, God would pour out his Spirit on all people. So John is very clearly marking a difference between his ministry and that of the Messiah's. He baptizes in water, but the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit, as the Old Testament prophets had said. And Acts 2 is the initial fulfillment of this promise. You see the Spirit being poured out in Acts chapter 2, and then the Spirit really carries the work forward all through the book of Acts. In fact, Luke tells us in Acts 19 about some disciples of John the Baptist who actually never experienced the rest of the story. And they were only baptized in water, but they hadn't yet received the Spirit. They didn't even know the Spirit had been poured out yet. So they never had heard the rest of the story. Um, and so in that moment there in Acts 19, they were baptized into Christ and they received the Holy Spirit in a visible way. Um, because the Spirit is the distinguishing mark of being in Christ. What about this baptism with fire? He will baptize you not only with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. What does that refer to? And there's really two options for that. One is the purifying fire of God's presence. And for example, when the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, uh, this symbolism of fire accompanies it. In fact, God frequently appears in the Old Testament as fire, for example, like the burning bush or the pillar of fire. Uh, and so potentially it's God's presence as a purifying presence. Or the other option is the fire of God's judgment. Um, you see this maybe even in what follows up, this idea of burning up the chaff. In fact, fire is frequently associated with God's judgment throughout the scriptures. And so it could be the purifying fire of God's presence, or it could be the fire of God's judgment, or perhaps, and this is kind of where I land, perhaps we shouldn't distinguish too strongly between the two. Maybe it's best to say that when God comes by the person of his spirit, for those who repent, God's fiery presence will purify them. But for those who refuse to repent, God's uh, fiery presence will be a, a judgment upon them. And so maybe we shouldn't press too hard of a, a distinction between this fire of purification or fire of judgment. It is the baptism of the fire of God himself coming to dwell among his people. And for those who repent, it is a purifying fire. But for those who don't, it's a fire of judgment. Uh, John goes on in his preaching and he says, his winnowing fork is in hand to thoroughly clear his flesh, threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The winnowing fork was used to separate the wheat from the chaff. You'd harvest the wheat, you'd beat it, 
or you'd run a threshing sled over it to break the husk loose of the kernel. Then you'd use like a giant wooden pitchfork to toss it into the air and the wind would uh, blow the husk away from the kernel. The kernel would fall to the ground and be gathered up and stored in the barn, but the husk, the chaff, would be swept into a, a burn pile to be burned up. That's the picture being painted with his words. And so Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to pour out his spirit. And if you're not ready, you'll be like that chaff. But if you are ready, you'll be like that wheat that'll be gathered up into his barn. And so Luke summarizes in verse 18, with many other exhortations, John preached the gospel to the people. And what's striking about that little summary is that it's called the gospel. John is preaching the gospel. Why? Well, because John is preparing the way for God's salvation, for God's deliverance. He's preparing the way of the Lord. And so even though John is preaching a strident call for repentance, it's good news because God is about to fulfill his promises. And he's about to bring his Messiah onto the stage of history. And he's about to bring, therefore, his salvation and his deliverance to his people. And thus John is preaching the gospel. So Luke has summarized John's ministry and John's message. The last thing to do in verses 19 and 20 of this section is to summarize John's fate in order for preparation for what happens a little bit later in the gospel. And so Luke tells us in verses 19 and 20, But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him, by John, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all, he locked John up in prison. Now, we'll come back to John's fate more fully a little bit later, and Luke will tell us the rest of the story. So he's preparing us um, what's going to happen to John. And he does so by telling us that Herod locked him up in prison. This is Herod Antipas. He's the ruler over Galilee. And Herod had divorced his first wife and married Herodias, his niece, and the ex-wife of his half-brother Philip. And John had rebuked him for this, right? John had rebuked Herod for marrying his half-brother's daughter and his other half-brother's ex-wife. And so Herod uh, was not happy with John's rebuke, and so Herod had John put in prison. And so at this point now, Luke has the forerunner ready and prepared, his ministry summarized. We've uh, we've fast-forwarded to the, the time for Jesus to begin his ministry, and the preparer is preparing the way of the Lord and preparing the way of his salvation. And so before we leave this section, let me just offer just a couple short reflections. First, as noted above, the God of the Bible and the salvation of the Bible happens in the real world. It's not a mere moral philosophy. It's not just escaping to some higher spiritual plane. It's God himself acting in history through real people in the real world to bring about his purposes for the real world. And so God uses real people and works in the real world to achieve his renewal of all things. And that's what he's doing here. We're located in history. We're on the Jordan River during the time period when all these rulers are active. And we have one ruler who because of his choices, gets rebuked by John the Baptist, and he puts John in prison. It's in the real world of space and time that God works out his purposes of salvation. 
The second reflection that I would offer here is that repentance shows up in the concrete details of everyday life. When the people ask John, what should we do? What should we do? He gives them very concrete, specific examples from their everyday life. If you're a tax collector, collector, do your job with integrity. Don't price gouge. Only do what's right. Act with integrity and honesty and do what's right. If you're a soldier, don't use your position of authority and power to bully people. Don't use your position and your greed to, you know, take more than really is your fair share. Uh, if you're a, a person who have means and you have a little bit more than somebody else, make sure you help take care of those who don't have enough. Like these real world examples are how repentance shows up. It showed up in the concrete details of their everyday life, and it should show up in the concrete details of our everyday life. What does repentance look like in your life, right where you live, with the people around you, with your resources, your job, your relationships, in your situation? Pray and humble yourself before God and ask for insight and discernment. What would it look like to live a life of good fruit where you live every day?